Friends, we're very privileged to be part of a church that excels in music. It is a gift to share in worship with you. Our sermon text from today comes from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. And this is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, for Christ is all and in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, but of love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. A couple of weeks ago, I stated that Christians change by not changing. And I stand by my statement. On an identity level, we, much like the prodigal son, don't change who we are in order to have a proper relationship with God. When we sin, fail, stumble, God doesn't relinquish from us our statuses as sons and daughters. It is indeed true what we just sang, that God's grace is greater than our sin. Today, however, I stand before you making a different statement. Christians change by changing. Not at the identity level, but we change in the heart level. Being leads to becoming. We have been set free from the power of sin, but we are becoming progressively free from the pollution of sin. So, here's my main point for today. If you are a Christian, you are in a constant, observable process of dying to your own vices and becoming alive to the virtues of Christ. So we've been working our way through Colossians. And, and, and Colossians is very heavy on identity in the beginning. Who we are in Christ, very common of Paul's letters. But as Colossians progresses, this identity gets fleshed out. So we're going to observe in our text three ways today that Christians, or three areas that Christians should be progressively changing in their Christian walk, 
In verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the mind. In verses 5 through 15, we're going to see the behavior. And finally, verses 16 and 17, we're going to consider the area of worship. So mind, verses 1 through 4. Have you ever tried to implement change in your life and found yourself frustrated? Perhaps, right? This is the first service in February. Perhaps if I were to ask you how your New Year's revolution, resolutions are going, you would say, not good. Not good. Change is often hard and complex, and very often we don't even know where to begin. But the Bible tells us where change begins. The Bible makes clear where change begins in the inner person, in the mind. Verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2 reiterates verse 1. Set your mind on things that are above not on the things that are on earth. The mind of the Christian must always be directed towards heaven. Our thought lives, our inclinations, our emotions, our desires. Why? Because we have been transformed. We have died and resurrected in Christ. Our earthly citizenships have been revoked. And we have been given a new citizenship, that of heaven. Notice the first word in verse 1. You have been raised. In the original language, this is one word. The verb here is passive. Meaning, we didn't raise ourselves. We didn't get our eyes together. We didn't say, now I'm going to do what is right. In our own power. Someone raised us. That is God. Friends, the Bible is clear from beginning to end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If He did not love us first, we would not love God initiates this work in us by raising us from the dead. You see, before Christ, our condition is not one of sickness. Our condition is not one of we're bruised. Our condition is not one of someone who is drowning and needs a lifesaver. Our condition is one who is dead in the bottom of the ocean. And there is nothing we can do to come up because dead people don't resurrect themselves. But we have been raised. Praise the Lord. God has so worked in us that our dead spiritual life now is alive. So because we have been raised passive, right? Notice now the second verb, verb in verse 1. Seek. If you have been raised with Christ, and therefore seek the things that are above. This is not a passive verb. This is a very strong verb. This is an imperative. This is a command. As a result of the work of God in our lives, we must then seek heavenly things. Because God raised us with Christ, we must then seek the things above. In other words, in other words, we need God to give us the mind of Christ. And here's where so much change falls flat. We think that change is initiated by our own strength. We think we have control of our emotions, right? Because we don't often yell. Because we, we're not the ones who hunk at the person that took two seconds 
to get their car moving on the south side. We're not those people. But just because that outward action is not there, it does not mean that our blood does not boil, right? When somebody takes a little too long to turn that left turn. Friends, friends, just because our behavior, our behavior does not look like the behavior of the world, does not necessarily mean that we have the mind of Christ. This is why Jesus indicts his disciples, saying, It is not adultery that I'm calling you to avoid. It is the root of adultery, which is lust. It is not murder that I'm calling you to avoid. It is the root of murder, which is anger. It is in the mind that the battlefield takes place. It is in the mind that the battle begins. So friends, let, let us not think too quickly that we have the mind of Christ. Let us not think too quickly that our transformation is complete, lest we look at the world and accuse them while being Pharisees ourselves. Now, verses 3 and 4 give us two reasons why we need to seek the things that are above. Verse 3, we're told, For you have died. We die to the things of this world. The things of this world no longer impart life to us. Paul already told us twice in chapter 2 that we died to the elemental spirits of this world. So our minds cannot be consumed with the things of this world. I don't know if you've noticed as you get older in life, some things that used to thrill you don't, th don't thrill you anymore. That happens to me when it comes to Friday evenings. When I was younger, I didn't understand folks who didn't go out to have fun on Friday evenings. I, I used to think, Friday evening, you only live if you go out with your friends and have fun on Friday evenings. And I'm talking about a holy, innocent, Christian, uh, healthy youth group Young Adults Ministry Fund. And I, and I thought, whenever I didn't get to do something on Friday evening, I, I didn't really live that way. There was something missing. As I got older, however, I want nothing more than just be homebound Friday evening. The earlier, the better. Right? And if there's a pizza included in this whole deal, even better. And if there's a good movie that I can watch for five minutes and then fall asleep, even better. Isn't that, doesn't that sound appealing to you if you're north of 22 years of age? <laughs> Friends, you know what happened to me? I died to Friday evenings. It doesn't thrill me. It doesn't entice me. The idea of going out and doing things that will further tire me, they're not appealing to me. Because, because I've been transformed by age. I've been transformed. I, I, I've taken on more responsibilities in life. Uh, in, in many ways, I've matured and, I, and my body's gotten weaker. And I need rest. So there's this transformation that happened in my heart concerning Friday evenings. The parallel, the transformation that should happen in our lives concerning, concerning the things of the world. This is how the things of the world should feel for us. We should look at them and not think, oh, how I miss them. But think, what was I thinking? How could I be enticed by those things? You know, I wonder if in your own Christian life, you're able to look in the back, in the past, and think, I used to. But I know more. You know, when you examine your own Christian life, has your mind so, be, so has your mind so uh, become transformed by the work of God in you that you can look in your past and say, there were some things in the world that enticed me, but no longer today. All that thrills me today is Jesus. Now, I understand 
that transformation in the Christian life is progressive, right? And, and there are certain areas that we are working on, certain areas we're going to work on for the rest of our lives. But it is true of every Christian that we should be able to look back and praise the Lord for His work of sanctification in our lives. Now sometimes it's clear to see what the things of the world are, right? You know, the vices of the world, sinful behavior, those things that are clearly anti-God. We'll talk more about those in my second point. But sometimes, good things, when elevated too highly, they too are things of this world. Work is wonderful. Workaholism is idolatry and a grave sin against God. Leisure and recreation are gifts from God. But when we derive our will to live from our next vacation or from the ability to practice our hobbies, friends, we have created an idol. Family is a wonderful thing, but when the words of our Lord Jesus Christ sound too radical to us in Luke 14, 25, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If these words are too radical, friends, we have created an idol. Several years ago, I read what used to be second to the Bible, the most popular book in the English language, Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress by English Puritan John Bunyan. And, and if you haven't read that book, you should. Christian, the main character, seeks to convince his family to pursue Christ. But once his wife and children reject, he leaves them. He leaves his family behind to pursue Christ. And I'll be honest, when I was reading it, I was shocked. Can he do that? Can, can he leave his family behind and pursue Christ? Who is going to take care of his family? But in this beautiful allegory, Christian knows that nothing could hold him from pursuing Christ, even family. So friends, when we set our mind in the things that are above, or from above, in the heavenly things, good things can disguise themselves as ultimate things. And when good things disguise themselves from ultimate, uh, to, uh, for being ultimate things, friends, that's when we're most in nature. Because we know, right, we know what godliness looks like. But isn't it good that our children get straight A's? Yes, it is. Is it ultimate? Never. My brother and my son fail every class. But no Christ. Then my son goes to an Ivy League school and walk his way to hell. That's, an, that's a good thing. Friends, I would rather live in a shack and walk with my Lord and live in a mansion and forget my Creator. We have to be careful that good things don't become ultimate. In book two of Pilgrim's Progress, by the way, only about 3% of people that read book one read book two. Most people don't even know that there is a book two. Christian returns. He finds Christ and he returns home. And he leads his wife now we know is called Christiana and his children to follow the Lord. You see, the beauty of this, of this allegory is that if he didn't pursue Christ and if he didn't find Christ, he could never lead his family to Christ. But because he pursued Christ and found Christ, he was able to return and lead his family to Christ. 
The best thing a father, a husband can do to his family is to pursue Christ more than his family, more than his wife, more than his children, more than work, more than all other things. But look now at verse 4. Here's another reason why we need to seek the things that are from above. Because when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We who are heavenly minded, who have eternity in our hearts, we who have the mind of Christ, have the assurance that one day we too will be in glory with Christ. We have eternity in heaven assured. Christians must be consumed with heavenly thoughts because... Our Lord Jesus Christ was the most heavenly minded person to ever set foot on earth. And no one has done more earthly good than Jesus. I fear that our greatest problem is not that we are too tempted to think wicked thoughts. But that we are often too easily entertained by idle thoughts. Distracted thoughts. Our minds often gravitate towards lukewarm thoughts that are neither hot nor cold. Meanwhile, Satan is lurking around, desires, desires to devour our souls. This is a good reminder to men, isn't it? A church where men are disciplined in their thought life where men are heavenly minded, is a church that thrives in every area. Gentlemen, be disciplined in your thought life. Be immersed in the Word of God. I charge you to do that. Read good Christian books. Know theology. Do not idly leave the heavy lifting of intellectual work in your home to your wife. Men are often good at doing things with their hands, but we must be good at doing things with our minds as well. Lead your family in heavenly thoughts. Know your Bible better than anyone else in your home. Initiate family devotionals. Get on your knees and pray until your heart cries out to the Lord. Gentlemen, Wake up early Sunday morning and lead your family out of the door to church on time. Take charge of the spiritual condition of your home. Men, let me tell you this. The world is very confused about who you should be. But God knows exactly who you should be. And if you want to fulfill your purpose as a man, if you want to be all the men that you can be, listen to the Word of God. Let the Word of God control your thoughts, your mind, your actions. Be holy. Be godly. Be a leader. Take charge. And friends, you want to see a healthy church? If our men will do that, and, and let me say this, I am so encouraged with the men in this church. If our men will do that, our church will grow more and more in health, in holiness, in service, in worship to the Lord. Okay, so what about behavior? Let's consider verses 5 to 15, behavior. The transformation of the mind inevitably leads to a transformation of behavior. And it has to be in this way, right? It, it, it's, not, it's not just what's on the outside, it's on the inside. You, you can have the body of a 67 punch, right? With the engine of a Ferrari inside of it. Or you could have a Ferrari 
with the engine of a go-kart in it. What matters? It's what's inside. It's what's inside. So, the mind leads to what is outside. Listen to what Paul says about the thought life in 2 Corinthians 10.15. We destroy arguments and have every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. But how does change actually take place for the Christian? Change takes place for the Christian as we put off worldly vices and put on godly virtues. So, by faith, we must, let us consider this first, put off earthly vices. Listen to the list of earthly, worldly vices here in these verses. Verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, lying to one another. A list that in different ways, in different degrees, in that all of us. Friends, we all need to put off earthly vices that linger in us. This is why Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And why should we put off these vices? Because God's wrath is imminent for those whose lives are characterized by earthly vices. Verse 6, on account of these, right, this list, terrible list, the wrath of God is coming. The picture here is of a bowl that's about to be poured out. And those whose lives are characterized by these actions, behaviors, will experience the wrath of God poured out on them. Perhaps one of the most terrifying verses in the entire Bible. Hebrews 10, 27-28. You see, we believe so much in the perseverance of the saints that sometimes we forget that wordings are true in the Bible, and genuine. And we, saints, should hear the wordings and heed. Hebrews 10, 27, 28. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgments and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Friends, Christians who have grown comfortable with their sin need to hear this warning. Do not sin deliberately. There is no sacrifice for those who ultimately persevere in sinfulness. God is calling you to lay aside every sin Listen to me. Every single sin. We can't have those sins that we say, Lord, not this one. We can't have those sins that we say, Lord, you can be Lord of this part of my life, but not this one. This one, I'm Lord of. Friends, when Jesus comes and rules the heart, when He transforms the mind, He rules it all. Jesus is not partially our Lord. Either Jesus takes control of our entire lives, or Jesus is not ours. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. But Jesus conquers every rebel sin. I think my mind was in Pilgrim's Progress a lot as I was preparing this message. But I think it's important for us to understand, understand the allegory and, and 
I love the allegory of, of, of Christian who is pursuing Christ because he goes to pursue Christ, but as he begins this journey, he carries a burden on him. And, and people ask Christian, what is this burden you're carrying? And he's not really sure what it is. And, and he, honestly, the book doesn't even make it so clear what this burden is, but people are puzzled. Why are you carrying such a burden? What's the point? What's, what's the purpose? And this burden hinders his progress in his walk towards the celestial city. And towards the end of the book, there is this quote that I love. Because as Pilgrim sees the cross of Christ, he is freed from his burden. And friends, that's such a beautiful picture of our lives. Here, here's, what, here's what the book says. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty. Because of the load on his back, he ran thus till he came to at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came out to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till he came to the mouth of the sepulcher when he fell in and I saw it no more. Friends, that's us. We've run with a burden. Our sin, our guilt, our shame has been a burden. And it has hindered our walk in this life. Our pursuit of God. But when we look to the cross of Christ who gladly carried our burdens, who gladly said, your sins, I will take them. Who gladly said, who gladly said, I'll take on shame on your behalf. When we look to that cross, this burden falls off. And suddenly we're able to run this race with perseverance. And suddenly we know, we know that spiritual things really are true in our lives. And when we read our Bible, we really grow in the knowledge of God. And when we pray, God hears. And when we speak, people hear the truth. When we share the gospel, people come to faith. Our spiritual life becomes spiritually empowered because, because the sinless Savior died. And our sinful soul was therefore counted free. So I wonder, is, does your life feel burdened? Burdensome? Is the yoke that you're carrying, does it feel heavy? Do you wake up with the weight of the world on your shoulders? Friends, have you looked to the cross of Christ and realized that there is no wrath remaining for those who are in Christ? There is no payment necessary for those who are in Christ. No sin does God, does God count against you. Have you looked to Christ and have you given Him your burden? Friend, don't walk this walk, don't run this race with the burden that you can give to Christ. Because He exchanges your burden for His, and His is light. He helps. But another reason why we should put these vices off is because we have a new identity in Christ. Look at verse 7. In these you once walked. The, the assumption here is that you no longer walk because you once walked in them when you were living in them. And even more clearly in verse 10 and verses 10 and 11, and have put off the and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. For Christ is all. And in all, what does this mean? It means that our new identity is in Christ. 
We are who we are because we are one with Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're being shaped after His image. And His image is holy. That's our hope. Right? There's a holiness without which no one will see God. Jesus is holy. And we're one with Him. So when our identity is Christ, when Christ is all and in all, we're holy. So we walk in light of our holiness. Our cultural backgrounds, our social economic statuses, our lineage don't define us. What defines us is that Christ is all and in all. But as we continue in the text, we see that putting off vices is not enough. We also need to, by faith, put on heavenly virtues. So, look at verses 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds every, everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Did you notice where this change is rooted? Put on then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, an identity. Because God has chosen you, because God has loved you, now change your actions, change your behavior, change your attitude. So, so as Christians, we're not interested in mere behavior modification. We're interested in heart transformation that leads to godly behavior. These are the characteristics of those who seek to model their lives after Jesus Christ. You know, the letter of uh, Colossians and Ephesians are very similar letters in many ways. Uh, and so, I wanted to actually show you the parallel passage in Ephesians. It, it's not on your outline, so you're going to need to go there in your Bible. So, when we go to Ephesians... verse 25, we actually see this transformation being modeled here by Paul. So, the Christian changes by putting off earthly vices and putting on godly vices, godly virtues. So, it's not enough for us to say, I used to lie, but I no longer lie. I used to steal, but I no longer steal. I used to destroy people with my words, but I no longer do that. But instead, we need to say, I used to steal, but now I use my hands to serve. I, I used to lie, but now my mouth speaks the truth. I used to destroy people with my words, but now my words edify. So listen to what Paul says here in verse 25, Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see, falsehood gets, gets replaced with speaking the truth. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, the life of a Christian is in constant transformation. And the transformation is not only putting off the old self, but it is putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Our actions go from ungodly to godly, not ungodly to neutral. We go from being enemies of the cross to those who love the cross. We go from liars to truth speakers. We, we go from, from, from thieves to those who are generous. 
For the Christian, the process of change is not complete once the vice is conquered. For the Christian, the process of change is complete once the earthly vice is replaced with a heaven virtue. We don't merely stop doing what is wrong. We replace that which is wrong with that which is right. And because we are by nature unable to produce good in and of ourselves, at the center of behavioral change in Christianity, there must be faith in Christ. A faith that forgives, a faith that imparts hope, a faith that leads to grace, and a grace that trains us unto godliness. Finally, let us consider worship. Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, says this, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do, it defines who we are. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. The ultimate goal of the human experience is the worship of God. This is why we exist. This is why we are here. The problem is that by nature we are idolaters. Did you catch that in verse 5? Covetousness is idolatry. Every time we desire something that God has not given us, we are practicing idolatry. Really, what Paul is doing there is he's bringing the first commandment, do not have any other gods before you, and the last commandment, do not covet. And he's saying, that's everything. It's everything. The worship of God is putting off covetousness. We are by nature idolaters. We are dissatisfied with the Lord has given us. We want more. We want better. And we don't trust that God knows what is best. Covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is not just bowing down before images made out of stone or wood. Idolatry is desiring anything that is not God more than God. By this definition, we're all idol worshippers. But we may not bow to we may not bow to an idol made of wood, or perhaps we bow to a car, to a bank account, perhaps we bow to a relationship, perhaps we bow to someone else's life, perhaps we bow to the idealized vision of our own lives, perhaps we bow to the idol of security. We all bow to idols. And we must conquer them. We must destroy them. And we destroy them by replacing these idols with the worship of the one true God. And we are gradually conquering these idols in our lives. True worship is inspired by the word of Christ. Did you see that in verse 16? Let the word of Christ dwell in you Richly. This is why we say at Central that our worship are, is not just saturated by the Word of Christ, but it is also shaped by the Word of Christ. God cares not only that we worship Him, He also cares about how we worship Him. The Bible, the Bible fills the time that we spend together worshiping. But it also determines what we do when we gather. We believe that God regulates His worship. Therefore, we choose the elements of our worship according to what God wants. We choose them when we find biblical warrant to do them. So, we preach the Word. 
we sing the Word. We read the Word. We pray the Word. And we observe the Word through the ordinances. This, this is our worship to God. God calls us to approach Him in His own terms. This means worship is not about our preference, but about God's preference. We don't come to worship in order to feel great. We come to worship because God is great. So, what can we learn from, this, from the worship of God in this passage? Look again at verse 16. The word of Christ ought to dwell among us richly as we do what? As we teach and admonish one another in our wisdom. Let me make two quick observations. The word of Christ should dwell richly among you all. Plural. Teaching and admonishing one another. Group of people. The worship of the church is corporate in nature. We gather together to worship, not seeking to have a personal, individual experience with Christ, but together to exalt the name of Christ. So we don't create worship bubbles, right? Here's my little bubble, and I feel great when I'm in my little bubble Sunday morning. No, you're worshiping in order to teach and admonish one another, encourage one another, so that the Word of Christ may dwell among us richly. Many in this church have beautiful voices. Others just make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Whichever you are, do it boldly, do it gladly, sing loudly. Why? Because it encourages others. Two, congregational singing is content driven. You see that? Our lyrics must be deep enough that we can teach and admonish one another through them. Most modern worship songs are neither false nor true. They just don't say enough for us to even know what they're saying. Not at our church. The worship of our church is filled with good, healthy, biblical theology. So, when we choose our songs, we choose them because they speak the word of Christ to us. The Bible tells us to never separate that doxology and discipleship. Then in verse 16, we even get further specific uh, commands for how we should worship the Lord. What kind of liturgy, what kind of songs should we choose? We should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Hymns, many churches do. Spiritual songs, many churches do. And friends, the psalms we must. I think this is one of the most neglected aspects of Christian worship. We sing songs that sound like songs. We sing songs that are based on songs. But we don't sing the songs. And we're told over and over in Scripture that we must sing songs. As Central Baptists, we sing the songs. We did that today for our choir. And we'll sing more psalms, and we'll continue singing the psalms as we receive them in the Word of God. Why? Because God tells us to do that. Do you see the, the Word of God regulating the worship of God? Because God tells us to do that. If we have one hymn book that is inspired by God, it is the book of Psalms. So we must not neglect to sing God's hymn book. Finally, we get to verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. 
Worship is singing, but it is not just singing. Worship involves all of our lives. Whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. Our opportunities to serve, to worship God, run seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We live our lives before the presence of God at all times. Don't always worship God, but we must. So what do we do when we don't worship God? Friends, we need God in order to worship God. We need God to change our hearts, cause us to see Jesus and find Him delightful, desirable. And that way, we won't just worship God when we're singing our songs, but our entire lives will gradually be redirected so that in every moment, every moment of our lives, we may worship God, the one true and living God. Christian change is not a mere program for self-improvement. Instead, it's an overhaul of a past sinful life that does not please God to a life that totally, that is totally directed towards the worship of God in Christ. So, let us pursue change in the power of the Spirit so that we can become more and more worshipers of the one living God. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that we need you to work in our hearts, your perfect plans. Lord, we are so often so distracted. But Lord, you can work in us. We pray, Father, that you would do so. Lord, conquer every rebel thought, every wicked deed. Lord, do not leave us to our former nature. Shape and form us into the image of Christ. We pray these things in the name of your beloved Son. Amen. Amen.